If you had a Bible, brought a Bible, want to turn to one in front of you, uh, look at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2 will be there in a moment. We'll have it on the screen. And I want to begin by just uh, giving you a good report. Certainly, if this is your church and I'm your pastor, uh, we uh, called you, uh, talked to you about Love Gives at the end of the year and how it uh, is um, an initiative for our future to continue to be um, very strategically generous as a church to make sure that we're vessels and conduits, that money flows through us to the good and the blessing of others, but we're also able to tackle this facility and that it would facilitate kingdom work as we love people here in Fondren and revive this old, beautiful place. I want to let you know that December was our best month of giving ever in the history of our church. Isn't that great? And, and it was a part of the best year of giving that we've ever experienced, which is even greater than that. And so thank you if you gave. I want to say thank you. If you haven't, I want to invite you in. The bad news in that scenario is we needed it. And so it's so good that we're, I believe that we've got God-shaped visions and dreams to tackle something bigger than ourselves. You know, if you're not tackling something big and part of an adventure that requires risk, then you get bored. You get bored in that. But if you got something bigger than you, the temptation is not to boredom, but maybe to anxiety and being overwhelmed. But I, I'm, I'm excited that we're trusting God for big things here. Thank you for being a part, for me being able to stand up here today and give you that good report. Thank God. Thank so many of you. And want to invite others of you to join us in that. In fact, January is the hardest month financially for churches. And there's so many of you uh, who haven't taken that step to become a strategic giver. I said from this stage back in December in one of the Advent sermons that I believe, I'm just resoundingly convinced that uh, strategic gifts to an outward-facing church is the best investment that you can make, uh, best financial investment that you can make. We're on the front lines of a real spiritual battle, and uh, pray that you'll consider that. Well, we teased you a little bit through email, maybe uh, social media, just a little bit about the sermon. I was trying to read the hearts, trying to read the faces, rather, of people from the first service. I don't know if I, we disappointed or not. Didn't mean to hype up, but I do want to just share with you something super um, important to me that has uh, a few years ago pulled me out of something that I needed to be pulled out of and then has kept me on course. So before I give you the 18 words that we're talking about today, I want to give you one of those 18 words, and it's this word, the word drift. Let me ask you, as I did the 930, uh, what does this conjure up for you? What images, memories, associations, what ideas does the word drift bring to your mind? For me, on the surface level, it can be positive. Like to drift is like, it's like to be, it's like being at 30A on vacation and you're on the lazy river and you got the floaties and you're just drifting. You don't have a care in the world, no obligations, duties, responsibilities. You're just drifting and that can be a good thing. Remember the song from the 70s that we still, they still play today. Give me the beat boys and free my soul. I want to be lost in your rock and roll and, and drift away. Y'all know that. And notice the language there. It's drift away, just like what we're going to look at today. It's drift away. In other words, I'm here. I want to drift. I don't want to drift back to here. I want to drift away from here because here is hard. Here is, it has responsibilities. Here is not good for me right now. I don't want to be here. I want to be there. I want to drift there. So in that respect, it can conjure up some positivity. But what I want to do today is talk about drift, not as something that's delightful on a vacation or from a cool song, but something that is dangerous and potentially destructive for you, for all of us. It's when we drift. Drift is a few characteristics. Drift is slight. Drift is slow. Drift is unseen. 
Would you think for a moment? This isn't a sudden explosion. It's a sudden, it's a slow erosion. Let me say that better than I did. It's not a sudden explosion. It's a slow erosion. It's slight, slow, and unseen, and hence the danger of it. There's movies and songs where someone wakes up in a different state. How'd I get here? How'd I get in this strange foreign land? That's the stuff of books and movies typically, but not the stuff of life. Life, more often than not, is adrift, slight, slow, and unseen. It happens over time. And look, no one plans to drift. By definition, it's a contradiction. You start with a plan that involves a future. By the way, so much of life is a future. Wisdom from Solomon and Proverbs, without vision, the people perish. Like we need, it's, it's a human thing to, to need a hopeful thing, to have something that we look forward to, a future that's a preferred future that we keep in our sights. And if we don't have that or we lose sight of that future, we've drifted. You end up, you start with a plan, but you end up in a place that's different than the place that you plan to be. And if that's you today in any area, any important area, you've drifted. In my life a few years ago, it was these things. One of the things that... It's part of uh, the, the responsibility of being a pastor. Bear with me for a moment. It's just the, what John Piper would call the perils of professional Christianity. And there's others in the room, and you can experience this in your own way. But it's the sense of life in a fishbowl, or a sense that uh, I should be good, and that people are watching, and there's this sense of duty. And then when you've been around it a while, and you, you know the verses, and you know the songs, you know the passages, and you know the cliches, you can... Slight, slow, unseen, you can drift. You can drift into lukewarmness. You can drift into hard-heartedness. You can drift into cold-shoulderness where your relationships aren't what they should be. You're not where you want to be. A few years back, I found myself there, and I'm grateful for these 18 words that, wouldn't you know it, come straight from Scripture. It's Hebrews 2.1, and it says the following. Therefore... We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, in the 930 service, I saw people going. So just let me just give you a moment. Go ahead. Some OCD people. All right, 18 words. You got it? There you go. I just, yeah, like I said, 930, they were doing this. So just give you a chance to count that. What's the answer to the drift? Pay attention. And here's what I want to say. It's not just not paying attention versus paying attention. Okay, stay with me. If you're a teacher, any teachers in the house, we had some at the earlier service, you know as a teacher, professor, when you're up lecturing, it's easy to spot somebody, a student, that's what, not paying attention. So you might say, hey, you're not paying attention. And then kind of the assumption is, oh, okay, now they look, so they're paying attention. So don't think about this in that level of just the false dichotomy or the shallow dichotomy of, not paying attention versus paying attention because what you have here in this passage is a reality for us is that there's levels of attention you can move from not paying attention to paying attention some people have accused me of some hyperactivity and stuff before so so unfounded you can move from not paying attention to paying attention but there's levels of attention there's paying attention there's paying 
close attention. There's paying closer attention. There's paying much more closer attention. And that's what we're given here. You and I are invited in. This invitational life is that we would be dialed in, that we would even be able to see the unseen, that we would have our perceptions awoken and alive, that we could perceive things, that we wouldn't be lulled in some sort of state of sleep, that we would be awake to the realities that God wants us pay attention. This morning, I want to share with you three things that have been woven into the fabric of my life. I want to share some generalities for all and maybe a couple specifics in my own life as I make this a bit personal. The first is from a pastor that I know. Um, We're going to put it on the screen, but let me ask you to take it down for a second. Ah, Yeah, leave it up. Take it down. Leave it up. Yeah. Just playing with Amy. I'm paid to be here. She's a volunteer. I think we lost her. Sign up a new one. Um, how many of you remember the food pyramid? Remember the food pyramid? It's obsolete now. So if, you're, if you remember it, you're just a historian or you're somewhere in the age vicinity of me. But the food pyramid, man, we were drilled that into our science and health classes when we were young. And you'll remember that. It's like a, obviously a pyramid, but it's, it's proportions of nutrition, what's good for you, what you need, et cetera, et cetera. Now, uh, several years ago, um, the science community, um, health professionals moved us away from the pyramid. Did y'all know that? Now there's the food plate. So under the leadership, I think Michelle Obama was the spokesperson for this uh, back years ago, but we moved from the pyramid to the plate. That's the new thing. But a pastor friend of mine, Brett McCracken, I wish I had a cool name. Brett developed uh, recently uh, what he calls a wisdom pyramid. And so this is, I'm giving you a few tools to help you pay attention. If you've drifted, if you're in a place that you didn't plan to be in, or I'm helping you, we're being preventative today so that you won't drift away from the values and the commitments that you've made. A lot of you are sitting next to people that are counting on you. You don't have to have my job to feel that weight. You don't. Some of you carry greater weights than I do. But Brett developed this pyramid. I don't expect you necessarily to see all uh, the words here, from on the screens, but we will, we're going to make this tool available. Daniel Hicks, our communications guy, is going to make this available for everybody. We'll pass it out uh, next week. This is an idea. The idea here is there's different, what Brett calls the different knowledge groups. How can we train our minds? How can we control our thoughts more? How can we let things enter in to think great and noble thoughts as Scripture invites us to do. And so he developed, again, what he calls the wisdom pyramid, trying to preach for those who will also be listening online. But down here, the foundation is the Bible, what is referred to often, what some of you have devotions that call it this, our daily bread. I often tell you, remind you, there's a reason that the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. There's a reason that men and women with names that some of you will recognize have suffered and died to translate the Bible into more thousands of languages and dialects like no other book in the history of the world. It's been translated to so many languages and dialects that 96% of the world's population has direct access to it. 
Most of you have multiple copies of it in your house. A recent Pew survey indicated that over 90% of Americans have a Bible. Some 85% plus Americans believe the Bible is a holy book. But well under 20% of us read the Bible on a weekly basis. The Bible is God's word to us. Far from junk food. Far from the top rung of the pyramid. I was talking to a buddy. He pastors in the Texas panhandle in the city of Lubbock. We were talking a couple of days ago about, hey, what are you preaching? Hey, what are you preaching? I told him and he told me, he goes, Robert, basically what I'm saying is on Sunday to our congregation, I'm saying, read the Bible and do what it says. And what I loved, I loved his passion. He wasn't being timid or shy. He wasn't making an apology for the simplicity of it. He believes that he should start the year with his church saying, read the Bible and do what it says. I love that. I want to encourage you to think that way. Scripture's powerful. It's like nothing else. The early church fathers and mothers, we'll talk about this in a second, but the church has a history. This isn't, we're a church plant. Our goal is not to be hip and cool and trendy. Our goal is not to differentiate ourselves from other churches and have some compellingly stunning, unique vision. Our goal is to step in with the truth of God and to follow Him in relationship and not try to be trendy in any way. There's a history to what we're following. It's credible. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. And the early church fathers and mothers had a saying because they talked about the simplicity, how the Bible is simple and yet it's deep. And they said that a gnat can swim in it and an elephant can drown in it. The Bible can correct the erring. It can inspire the daring. It can encourage the disheartening. It can humble the overbearing. And can I tell you, I've needed all of those in my life. The scripture can correct you. Will you let it? It can have that impact in your life. You read the Bible and you can find, about, you can find out about identity your identity. You can find out about family, the family that you, should be belo- that you should belong to. You can find out about your enemy. The older I get, the more I realize it's real, this spiritual battle that we're in. You can find out not only about your identity and about your family and your enemy, you can find out about the calamity of your sin and what your selfishness does to separate you from God and other people. You can also learn about a Savior that conquered life and death. And that invites us in to that life. You can find out more. You can learn about being a child of God. You can learn about your eternal destiny as a citizen of heaven. It's in this book and it's inspiring. And I think we ought to read it. Scripture transforms when we submit ourselves to it. Over the next 30 days or so as a church, we're going to try to provide you some online tools to help you make this more part of your life. But it starts with you being open to the idea. We're going to try to inform you and inspire you both there. The church, I've kind of talked about it, but a physical place. Brett McCracken, the developer of this Wisdom Pyramid, talks about how important it is to come to church to learn. Yes, there's the preaching, and that is pretty important, but I have learned that I learn from songs. I learn from sacraments. I learn from the fellowship that I have before, during, and after. I learn from communion. Regularly, once a month, we take communion. This do in remembrance of me. I am reminded, and I learn more and ponder more. I treasure things in my heart, thinking about the destructiveness of my own sin, the fact that I needed a Savior, the fact that a DIY do-it-yourself project doesn't work on a human heart. 
that no matter how much we advance with education and technology and science and medicine, none of that can change a human heart. We need a savior. We need to be forgiven. We need to know that we're loved. And that's what the church, if we commit to it, that's what it can be for us, a physical space. Make a commitment to be here, to fill your mind with things. A church can help you do that. You can make it a regular part of your life. Nature and beauty. The scripture itself in Psalm 19, a lot of you know this, says the heavens declare the glory of God. Get outside. Get outside, sit and enjoy it. Relax and ponder it. Think upon it. Use it to help you pay attention to what matters most. Remind yourself that you're a small but important part of something much larger and cosmic and universal than your own existence. Worship him. Psalm 8, I went out, David went out into the starry host above. Lord, what is man that you are mindful of me? Guess what? He is mindful of you in the midst of the expanse. That fires me up. Apparently, not you. Books are next on the pyramid. Books, read books. Listen, you, you heartened me at the end of the year when I stood up here thinking most of you were asleep like you are now. And I recommend you reading a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by a young pastor in Portland named John Mark Comer. And I was overwhelmed by how many of you uh, wrote to me, hey, what was the name of that book again? You should have been listening the first time. But I, I, I responded to you and so many of you bought it. You sent pictures of yourself buying it. Now, read it, all right? Read it. Read that book. And going back to the scripture real quick. Well, let me say this about books. There's nothing like them. I don't want to get into a shallow debate about you know, the devices that you read, but there's nothing like a book. And they haven't been here. Brett McCracken talks about how the pyramid really is built on from enduring to fleeting. Okay, you with me? Look, I'm not up here saying the internet's a passing fad. I'm not here saying, hey, get you a stack of Encyclopedia Britannica's from A to Z. The internet is here to stay, but it's always evolving and burgeoning and changing. You know what I'm saying? And certainly with social media, what I have found in my short history on social media, when I jump on something, it's no longer cool again, right? The kids go somewhere else because I'm on it. These things change. They can have some value. Find out what's good. Find it and focus on it. Don't mindlessly surf. And our problem is we spend time looking at these devices, and you know what? It's junk food. Show that photo if we could. Amy, my buddy Paul posted this week. So you can learn something from social media. If you give this to your plants, why give this to your kids? So what I ask you today, what are you filling, filling your minds with? Is what's fleeting? Is it the junk food of clickbait, fake news, alternative, post-truth? Because that's where we're living today. You know, you ever looked at Yahoo? That's the most, you know, most clickbait thing I've ever seen, like lowbrow. I want to say, you're better than that. You're better than that. Read a book. We want to help you. We want to resource you. Because here's what I want to say. This doesn't have to, anything to do with IQ. You can, you can strengthen your mind. You can have a more peace-filled, joyful mind. You can, more than you think, control your thoughts. And if you're resisting what I'm saying, you're already pushing yourself back into victimhood. You can control your thoughts more than you think. When one of my boys was in trouble, he was four years old many years ago. I won't tell you which one. One of them's in the room. One of them was in trouble. And so I put him in timeout, one of the softer modes of discipline. I said, here, you sit in this chair, just facing everybody, just sit in the chair. Timeout, don't talk. 
Nothing, no devices, no, nothing, just right there. Think about it, time out. That joker was smiling. Just smiling ear to ear, just smiling. Your eyes were going places. I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? 15 minutes later, what are you doing? He said, I'm thinking about cartoons. <laughs> thinking about cartoons. I'm like, you're in trouble. And I realized how defenseless I was. I mean, I can put him in place, right? I can put him in his place. I can tell him what his place should be, how long he should be there. But I can't control his thoughts. You, you with me? Like he's thinking cartoons. He lessened the discipline. He lessened the punishment. He, he, brought, he was bringing joy in his life by what he was thinking about. I couldn't control that. Now, I wanted to. I thought about more stricter, harsher measures. You can control your thoughts. It can even transcend the situation, the trouble that you're in. You can control your thoughts. What I love about the Bible and what Jesus says when I talked about my friend saying, I'm preaching, he's in Lubbock, Texas, going, read the Bible and do what it says. And he and I were talking about it. When you look at so many of the accounts of Jesus and his interactions with people, he would give them, stay with me. This has changed my life. I want it to change yours. He would interact with somebody and then he would give them the next simple thing to do. He cleansed the leper, go tell the priest at the temple. He healed the paralytic, take up your mat and walk. We were there in February of 2018, the very spot where Jairus' daughter was raised and raised from the dead. And he says, fix them something to eat. Stay with me. Hear the words of Jesus and do what he says. It'll change your life. Our problem is, yours and mine, is we want to do the next brilliant thing. We want to do the next incredible thing. We want to do the next big thing. I want to say to you, do the next simple thing, the next right thing. It can change you. It can train you to pay attention and to fill your mind with great thoughts. How much junk food? How much time is here? Be honest. To follow. We need His Word and we need His church. And all these other things can certainly be gifts. Second thing I need to fly, it's important, is community. I want to ask you today to consider even a covenant. You see it on the screen. Living life together. Yesterday, a couple stood here and exchanged vows. Uh, this coming week, a couple will come here and stand with me, and they'll renew their wedding vows because God's been working in their marriage, and their marriage is getting stronger. They don't want to quit on their marriage. They want to move into the future with His grace and strength. Vows are really important, but you don't make a lot of vows. Even Scripture says that. You ever read Ecclesiastes, the wisdom literature? Don't talk a lot. Ouch. Don't make a lot of vows. Make them few. Make your words few. So you make vows and you keep vows. Here's a vow I want to challenge you to make community i will enter into the shared life that is practicing the way of jesus through worship learning praying confession serving and sharing in this passage hebrews 2 1 18 words that have changed and are changing my life three of them are we therefore we must pay closer attention right of for what to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. We, 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 no eyes in there, none. It's a we thing, it's a community thing. Alcoholics Anonymous has an old saying, I can get drunk on my own, but I can only get sober with others. Church, can I tell you? Can I look at you in love today and tell you strongly and passionately, you can sin on your own, but you'll only get help and healing 
in community with other people. We, we, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift. This is a we thing. Pediatricians, I see one in the room, child development, psychologists. I was reading from some experts in, of their stripe this week. We're talking about this concept called parallel play. Parallel play is uh, when a child is growing, they're out of the baby-baby stage, but they're two to three years old. They'll put a two to three-year-old in a room right next to another two and three-year-old, and they call it parallel play. They're not sharing their toys. We would say maybe on a surface level they're interacting and cooperating, but they're not cooperating. They're not interacting. They're not developmentally there yet. What they're doing is playing separately next to each other. They're next to each other, but they're playing separately. They're not sharing their toys. It's parallel play. Spirituality is not parallel play. It is us being close to each other. You're sitting next to somebody now by choice or not. But if that's not community. Could be, but it's not necessarily. But walking with Jesus, practicing the way of Jesus is, man, we're sharing life together. And just like in Alcoholics Anonymous, they know what they have in common. If they didn't get help, they would destroy their lives. Can I tell you, that's true of us. There is an evil one, and he is seeking whom he may devour, and he is roaring like a lion. I'm going to confuse you because Lauren had to sing another song. But 1 Peter 5, 8, he is roaring like a lion, seeking whom he, whom he may devour. Genesis 4, he's like a lion. He's crouching at the door. And some of us are this close to destructiveness in our lives. Together, us, we. Acts 2 describes a church that people like me need to preach to the modern church. It says this about them, that they were devoted. They didn't dabble. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship and prayer. They met regularly. They were filled with signs and awes and wonders among them. And they had, they had people who were selling possessions and property, giving to those who had need. They met regularly in the temple courts to worship. They met and broke bread. Very important phrase. They broke bread together in homes, small groups, with glad and sincere hearts. Would you make a com commitment to that? Would you be there? It wouldn't even be parallel play. You would say, let's share life together. I want to be known. I want to know you. There's somebody in this room that's got a story that you need to hear. You know what? You need to tell your story. You know, it's not your past that makes you sick. It's your secret past that makes you sick. It's what you're holding on to. And I want to challenge you today to think about the possibility to elevate this year for you. The joy and vitality of community and accountable relationships will become stronger than the gravitational pull of secrecy and darkness. And nobody's exempt. In fact, if you're on staff, if you're a pastor, an elder, deacon in our church, man, we have to be really careful to be soft, to continue to hear what God wants us to say through other people. But let, let's not stop here real quick. 
The early church, as glorious as it was, was filled with problems. Do y'all know this? They argued. Could you imagine that? Somebody arguing in church? They argued in the early church. We're past that now, but they argued. They argued about the Gentiles, about whether they should be let in or not, or if they should become like Jews, or they can just accept Jesus. They argued about that. They argued about whose widows would get more food, Palestine, poverty. It was real. They argued about what rituals and laws and customs should be allowed or not allowed, what's important, what's no longer important because of Jesus. Hebrews, by the way, is really clear on that. Read it, the whole book. They argued. Paul and Barnabas argued so much about a guy named John Mark that they split ways. A a guy named Simon, there's a whole bunch of Simons. Uh, There's one Simon who got envious and he attempted to buy the Holy Spirit. And you know what Peter did? Peter got in his face. Later, Paul got in Peter's face about ethnocentric legalism and exclusion. Happens today. But they got after each other. Here's what they learned in the early church. It's an example to us. Are you a leader here? Listen to me. Here's what they learned, that telling the truth, it doesn't kill them. It grows them. Telling the truth won't kill you. It'll grow you. In fact, as a giver and a receiver, consider this. It's a choice that we all have to live. And we're in the South. We're in Mississippi. We're, we sweep things under the rug. We are dying from terminal niceness. Some of you are in a boring small group. Guess what? It ain't your curriculum. It's probably not even your leader's fault or where you meet. It's the terminal niceness. Nobody's sharing. Nobody's speaking the truth. Nobody's ruffling any feathers. Jesus did all the time. Perfectly. And you won't get there. But he did it all the time. Listen, you have a choice. Do I courageously speak the truth in love or do I wordlessly watch you self-destruct? And it happens all around us. Let's grow closer together. And let's speak the truth to each other. Years ago, early in my ministry, I was at another church working for another guy who was a good friend but knew me from college. He took me to lunch and let me have it. Imagine that. The perfect employee. He let me have it and he, he challenged me and it hurt in the moment it stung because I'm like, dude, where are you coming from? Bro, you, you calling me out? He challenged me. He said, Robert, you, you have a gift of humor and you joke, but you joke a lot, man. And what I love about you, what I'm drawn in you is the word of God in you. And life is so much more than a clever line or a cool joke. Like the word is powerful and the word needs to be known and we need, to, we need it in our hearts and we need to teach it and we need to live it. That's where the power is. And he called that in, out in me. He spoke the truth in love. Now, he was my boss. So it was safe, but I needed that. Are you hearing me today? Man, it hurts. Like I went home and you know what? I, I got a gift. Some of you have, I got a gift of pouting and I pouted. I went, I told her I, for days I pouted. And he doesn't appreciate me. He needs to appreciate me. It's his problem. Calling me out. I know what's going on. <laughs> you need what I need. Mississippi, we need it. Founder Church, we need it. I'm telling you, don't be bored. Speak the truth in love. Let's do it. You got to have both. You got truth. You got to have love. Some of you, truth and love. Lastly, beyond the wisdom pyramid that we want to resource you with next week and this commitment to community, I want you, I want you to go deeper with it. It's accountability. A word that has negative connotations. We'll close with that. I will enter into relationship with those who will call me to live up to my values and my commitments. A few years ago, I wanted to quit. I sat right behind that wall 
and things were kind of hard in my life. And a buddy of mine sent me a text. And he said, hey, RG, you need to read this book. And the book was called, it was called Leadership Pain. I ordered the book. Y'all know I love books. I ordered the book, got it in two days, cracked it. The introduction alone was life-changing. But my brother said, hey, read this because you need this. And in that book, the premise of the book, I hope you don't misunderstand this. In the premise of the book, the writer says, only to the extent that you can tolerate pain will your organization grow. In other words, if you're going to be a leader, you're going to have to walk through a lot. And it will at times be slow and painful and difficult, and you will experience betrayal. You will be criticized. You will be misunderstood for things that people don't even know about in your life. And I wasn't ready for that. Susan and the Holy Spirit reminded me that I had signed up for it. And I'm like, where? Where's the document? I don't remember it. I need to see it. Show me the document. Is it legal? Is it binding? And that pulled me out of a ditch and it reminded me that I follow a Savior who His grace can sustain me no matter what my little sensitive self is going through. And that His love for me is so much bigger than little hurts, petty stuff. And that's what they are. Momentary light affliction in the eternal weight of glory. Hey, Robert, what kind of pain are you willing to walk through so that God can do all that He wants to do in His church? I've told you before, it's not my job to fill this place. It's my job to fill this place and for God to fill me. And I want to say to you, I thank God today that I have some people who speak into my life. I want, I want all of you to have what I have. Does that sound cocky? I don't mean it to be. Man, I've walked some roads and I've got more to walk, but I want you to have that. Would you be open to the idea that the joy and vitality of living with accountable relationships can be so strong that it can... It can be stronger and better than the gravitational pull of secrecy and darkness. Here's what the scripture says about accountability. Three quick verses. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Hebrews, the book we're in, Hebrews 4. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jesus in Matthew 12, here's another ouch verse. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. Does that bother anybody? Does that convict you? Does that make you go, uh, I'm not coming to church next week? Me, a little bit. But here's the thing. Our God is not angry. Our God is not harsh. Our God is good. Our God is the rock. He, is the, he always does what is just. Our God calls us to repent and to learn and to grow. And so accountability is not a negative, harsh thing. It certainly can be. Man, you don't have love if you don't have wrath. Are you open to that idea? I'll have coffee with you and I think I can prove it. But you don't have love if you don't have wrath. Mess with one of my kids. Right? You with me? God is a God of accountability and that's a good thing. Some people, oh man, you know, we've got a whole new generation. God's a God of love. God's love. God's love. God is love. And he's a God of accountability. And here's what I learned. Like when my friend called me out those years ago, you know what? It wasn't harsh or negative. It was good. You know what it did? It's what God does to us. When you're held accountable, someone is saying to you that your life is meaningful. You are valuable. I see potential in you. God wants you to live life understanding that one day will you get account and there will be an ultimate question that all of us will answer one day. I believe it, I'm telling you. And you try not to believe it, it'll be hard for you to escape. All, right? all cynics, all critics, all doubters are welcome in the room. But you try to escape from the fact 
that eternity is in your heart. There's an eternity there and an ultimate judge. What will you do with what you've been given? We need to be accountable. We need to be accountable for a couple of reasons. One is we have a staggering ability to make excuse after excuse. I yell because of my kids. I'm angry because of my boss. I'm stressed because of my spouse. I'm late because of the traffic. I drink because of my problems. I'm bored because I'm angry because I'm... Before you know it, you've drifted into a life that's unseen in some ways. It's slight and it's slow, but it's a life of excuse-making and you're missing all, the, all these opportunities that are God-given, the contributions that you could make, the character that could be formed, the lives that you could shape. I tell you, as a pastor, one of the honors I have is to preside over funerals. Thank God I do more weddings, way more weddings than funerals, but I'm telling you, as a, a, being there, not everybody dies the same. Not every funeral is the same. And sometimes I'm up here, I mean, I got to contort things. God, how much should I lie? What should I say? This job ain't easy sometimes. But I'm telling you to live life and to don't move away from excuse making. If you drifted there, stop it. Come back. Pay close attention. Pay much closer attention to what you have heard in Jesus, to what the gospel is, and come back and take responsibility. I need to stop. Let me pray. Father, I pray in this stillness that we would think about a whole new year, opportunities we have, and quite possibly a covenant that we could make. Even someone of the stripe of I come late, I leave early, I'm here from time to time. Great person, but when it comes to faith and spirituality, they could be a dabbler. Lord, I pray that you help us move toward devotion. Lord, show me again and show our leaders that we can't keep secrets. That we're all living a life where we will one day be accountable. Help us, Lord, if the drift is vocational, if the drift is a hard heart, if it's being lukewarm, if it's the cold shoulders of relationships. Whatever the drift may be, would you do business with us? May we do business with you in these moments we have. There's a football game, there's lunch, there's stuff, there's school and work and dread that awaits us an opportunity. And I pray that we would be obedient to you in these moments. Receive our worship, our prayers. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Church, the altar is going to be open. Would you stand? And Lauren, Lucky, and the team are going to lead us. And I would love for you to join with me. The altar is open. It's not for show. It's to kneel before our Father.
to give him an area of our lives or to pray a prayer. It could be a prayer of gratitude. It could be prayer. Thank you, God. Like the preacher said today in his own way, I was drifting and you called me back. And Lord, I want to keep paying attention to you. I want to pay more attention. I want to pay more closer attention, much more closer attention. Maybe you could pray that today or maybe you could say, God, I'm, I'm drifting right now and I need to come back. I need, as Hebrews would later say, an anchor for the soul. How's that? Huh? An anchor for the soul. Maybe today your confession is, God, I want to do better with what I'm feeding. I can't pay attention with all this clickbait. And I'm spending most of my time, you may be spending most of your time, on what is fickle and fleeting and not what is eternal. That could be a confession, a resolution, a covenant you can make today. The altar is open. I'm going to kneel and I'm going to pray. I invite anybody to come. This altar is open. Just for a second, this is hard to do. Don't worry about anybody around you. For a few moments, let's worship Him. You come today. If we can pray for you, or if you want to kneel at this altar.